0: Well, good morning. good morning. Apologies for the slight delay this morning for Facebook to get that up and running. It's going very well, uh, working on our technology. But open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. We were so blessed last week to have Brother Harold open up Psalm 46 to us. And that is one of my favorite Psalms. As you may know, this song of confidence in the Lord was the inspiration behind Martin Luther's famous hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. You know, it's one of Luther's favorite psalms. And in fact, it was said that when a particular trial or challenge would confront Martin Luther, he would often look over to his helper or to his attendant and he would say, come, let us sing the 46th psalm and let them do their worst. Such was Luther's confidence in the truths of that psalm that so filled and strengthened that reformers battle weary heart. And I pray it did the same for you last week as well. Well, the whole Horbach family—you can see the row is kind of empty up here—was uh, blessed to be up in Minnesota this week, where I had the immense privilege of sharing the gospel and officiating the marriage of my sister Lydia with her now husband Parker, who you all have met, and who actually built, of course, our new website. Which, if you've not been uh, to the new home of HarrisonHills.org, it's a lot more than just a website. It's a wonderful resource. Uh, it's a tool with many topics and questions. So if you have as well as if you happen to be out of town like we were last week, or if you're listening online, you even have the option of giving online there as well. So technology can be a blessing, but be praying as well for our sister church, Fisherville Baptist Church, as they will be saying goodbye to both of their pastors next week. Uh, Dr. Brian Payne will be leaving his position at the seminary as well and moving back to his home in Alabama, taking up a pastorship, very special, though, at the church where it all began for him. And Pastor Jonathan will be moving to Austin as well, while he will be planting a church in an area that it is sorely needed. So please be playing for them in this season of transition. They'll be sorely missed. Well, together we made the laudable accomplishment two weeks ago of accomplishing and finishing the fourth chapter of Mark. We began the Gospel of Mark over seven months ago. So at this pace, we will finish in only about two and a half years. So it's almost six months ahead of schedule. You guys are overachieving on me here. Now, it's not easy, guys, to be an expository listener. Sometimes, I know that. It can be challenging. It's a learned skill. It requires us to show up ready for the word to do its work. If we don't engage our minds and our hearts, it may pass us right by. But learning to be expository listeners means you're never a spectator of a sermon. You're engaged with every word. You're chewing it over. You're digesting the principles. You're constantly applying the truth to your life. You're learning to ask the question, what did this mean to the original audience? And I know Pastor told us two weeks ago that he said a text only has one meaning. So what is that meaning? These are the questions. This is the disposition of the expository listener. And many of you are doing it already and you may not even realize it. You may notice when you sit down for your daily scripture reading, you tend to read slower. You tend to notice the individual words. You can chew on a verse in your mind, in your heart for the entire day. And I want to encourage you in that. This is what it means to meditate on scripture. Well, we left at the end of our chapter four, witnessing what we're going to describe as a state of bona fide terror by the disciples. And we're not talking about the storm on the Sea of Galilee that they thought was going to kill them. That fear, the fear of death, paled in comparison to the moment they realized just who it was that was in the boat with them. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? We were tempted when we read the story of Jesus calming the sea that the disciples were most afraid that they thought they were going to die, but it's not so. It seems that this was the first time that the disciples truly began to realize that God himself was sitting in this boat with them. And being in the presence of God is a most fearful thing for those who are outside of Christ. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But Christ be our mediator, making satisfaction for us. But He be the propitiation. That means the satisfaction for our sins. It would be a most fearful thing to be in the presence of God. Well, the disciples no doubt trembled in awe and fear at this display of power. Complete power over nature and the created order. Two simultaneous miracles. Remember, Jesus not only rebuking the wind to be still. But a sea that was churned up by this tumultuous storm becomes instantly still and clear as glass. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus commands complete and supreme authority over all nature. To speak to wind is intangible. No one knows where it goes or where it comes from. But when the author of life speaks... It snaps too. the creator of the cosmos speaks the molecules of the water. They're brought into immediate alignment and subjection to be calm at the command of the master. Now, you would think that this would be a lot for these disciples to take in. Perhaps it was time for Jesus to give them a little break to digest what they just witnessed. But no such luck. Today we're going to witness a demonstration on equal scale and magnitude to what we just witnessed on the sea. Not since God banished one third of the angels out of heaven for rebellion have we seen such a display of power against the demonic realm in all of scripture. there'll be much for us to see today. So we'll be splitting this incredible telling into two parts, part one and two, to make sure we can give a thorough treatment to this text. So with that, let's jump in. Mark five, one through 13, Mark five, one through 13. Then they came to the other side of the sea into the region of the garrison. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one was able to bind him any more even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began pleading with him earnestly not to send them out of the region, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain and the demons pleaded with him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together once again to be hearers and doers of your word. As we approach yet another earthquake of a story, we ask that you bring home for us the meaning and show us more clearly who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we can remember back about seven months ago when we began the gospel of Mark, you may recall Mark being very clear at the outset of what his purpose for writing this gospel was. as a refresher, I'll read for you Mark 1, verse 1. How does it begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying the entire purpose of this writing is to show you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Every gospel has an area of of emphasis, as it were. Marks is to show that Jesus is divine. He's all powerful. He's been given complete command and control of all things. All things have been put under his feet. In the last installation of chapter four, with Jesus calming the storm, we ask the very direct question, what is the point of this? Why did Jesus calm the storm? Why did Jesus put his disciples through this storm? What's the simple point? And you may remember the answer. Jesus is God. Full stop. We don't complicate what scripture makes simple. This is completely in line with Mark's stated goal and purpose. This Today is no different. The goal is the same. The point, the intent, and the purpose is the same. To demonstrate with all clarity and all proof that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he is God in the flesh and has been given complete authority over the demonic realm. And up to this point, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over the demonic quite a few times in scripture, right? We've seen it happen a number of times, but never to this extent and never to this extreme. Jesus' demonstration of calming of the sea and of this demoniac of the garrisons in rapid uh, succession and sequentially is very intentional. It's very intentional on Jesus' part. If nature does not obey, how can he change a heart? If the demonic do not obey, how could he usher in a kingdom? And that's the point. Jesus tells us in Luke eleven twenty, If I cast out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons with a word, with the power of God, then you will know that the kingdom of God has arrived. So with that foundation, let's dive in, beginning with verse 1. Mark 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea into the region of the Gerasenes. Well, who remembers the connotation of the phrase other side? Remember that? This is meant to be said with a tone, right? We're going over to the other side. You're going over there, right? Remember that? This was a place with what kind of reputation? Well, first and foremost, this is Gentile territory, isn't it? Remember that? Remember that it was a act of obedience to, For these Jews and for his disciples in Capernaum to get into that boat to go to this area. No self-respecting Jew would go to a place like this. Nevertheless, go to a place like this to relax. Rumor and folklore even had it that this was where Satan lived. This was where his demons roamed. And who knew they weren't completely wrong, were they? We're thankful to have some geography given to us here, though. I won't dig into the nitty-gritty of it, with the exception of mentioning that this area of the garrison, it's also known as the Gadarene. So if you see both of those names, don't be confused. We're talking about the same area. One just deals with an area around Decapolis, and the other focuses on an individual town. But recall as well the disciples. We're not just talking about 12 disciples in a boat, right? Like we see in the paintings and the children's books, right? We likely have about five boats, here, possibly including the full 72 disciples who would later abandon Jesus. They've arrived after having fear upon fear upon fear of dying in the storm, fear of the one who was in the boat in that storm, and are no doubt now thinking they're going to get some quiet time in this largely desolate and rural Gentile area. But no such luck. It is about to be fear on top of fear On top of fear. Isn't it interesting how the Lord introduces fear into our lives to refine us? Well, what greets them as they arrive on the shoreline? Verse 2, Mark 5, verse 2. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Oh, there's a lot to see here. How soon after Jesus stepped out of the boat was he approached? Mark's favorite word, immediately. My first question is, why? Why would this man choose to approach Jesus? Why would the devils choose to approach Jesus? Why not run away and hide? They knew who he was. Did the man have moments of lucidness and was drawn to Christ as we so often see in the Gospels? Short answer, I have no idea. I have no idea. We're not told why. Just that it happened. Now, it may be just as simple as demons desiring to be confrontational. Being a spiritual being doesn't necessarily mean superior intellect. He's described as a man from the tombs. Now, it should be noted that the other gospels actually talk about two men here. But Mark chooses to focus on the main one as the other one appeared to stay behind. He stayed back. But there was actually two of them. But being a man from the tombs, that tells us a great deal. Would this demoniac be a Jew or a Gentile? Well, we know he's a Gentile, not just because we're in a Gentile area, but no Jew would be caught dead, no pun intended, around anything that could even come in contact with the dead. This man's banishment to the tombs rendered him permanently unclean, according to Old Testament law. Any contact with the dead rendered you unclean for seven days. And he lived among the dead. And no doubt, right now, these disciples are even considering, they're watching this, and even the expanded rabbinical law that says they're unclean if they even come into contact with anything associated with someone who had come in contact with the dead. You're unclean by proxy, according to rabbinical law. If this crazy man touches me, I can't go to synagogue, basically is what they're thinking. But let's not miss this. Christ was willing to go where no one else would, Tells us something about our savior, doesn't it? And it wasn't a pleasant ride over to the other side either. But what will we do? What will we do? And what will we endure to reach the lost? What if they're horrible? Like being possessed with 6,000 demons, as we'll see here. Would you write that person off? Jesus didn't. Our savior was driven by grace. This man lives in the tombs. And it says this man had an unclean spirit. That met him. What are we talking about here? An unclean spirit, this is a demon. This is a fallen angel. This would be part of the one-third of angels that were cast out of heaven for joining Lucifer in his rebellion against God in heaven. Now, a quick plug there. We have a Ask Pastor Q&A section on our blog of Sermon Audio, and recently there was a question about this asking, if there is no sin in heaven or God's presence... How did the fallen angel, Satan, have the first desire for power or to be God? So if you're interested in the answer to that, you can go to Sermon Audio uh, page for Harrison Hills at the blog tab. You'll find it there. But And the box to submit those questions are out in the lobby, actually, too. They can remain anonymous. So our text says, with an unclean spirit. Now, at this point, we have no indication of the number of demons. That will certainly change as the story develops. But right now, it just says an unclean spirit. The man is possessed by the demonic, by a fallen angel. Now, we touched on the mechanics of this a bit in in earlier sermons, so we won't do that again. But understand what we're seeing here. We are not seeing a man with a psychological issue, though that certainly does accompany this, can accompany this. We're not seeing some sort of symbolic allegory. This is demon possession pure and simple, or rather, unpure and simple. It's real. Satan is real. He is not a symbol. He is a created being who is presently on the earth, along with his fallen angels, whose aim is to deceive and to distort and to fight against God wherever he can. Now, I know this sounds simple, or elementary, or pedestrian, to your ears but a recent pew poll said that 50 percent of professing believers in america do not believe that the devil satan is a real person now that's tragically humorous being that the devil's number one pervasive lie is that he does not exist he's a defeated foe he's awaiting his sentence when he will be permanently thrown into the pit created for satan and his demons but for now he is on a leash unleashing evil for god to use for his good and for his purposes but we don't preoccupy ourselves with the demonic that's also dangerous but we do not deny it or act like it's not there back to our text we're about to see quite a collision here jesus has stepped out of the boat and is met by this possessed man this event is recorded in three of the four Gospels, but only Mark gives us such a vivid description as he so often does. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 as one. Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain? Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was screaming and gashing himself with stones. Well, this tells us a lot about the effect that the demonic can have on those who have opened themselves up to their influence. And one is an unnatural strength. This person having their faculties, their members, their limbs, and even as we'll see their vocal cords used by the demonic that have taken up residence in this living person. And what they did with these types of people are very, what they did with these types of demonic people back in the day are very similar to what we used to do. They would attempt to restrain them. They tried chains and shackles, but nothing could hold him. We would would have put those people in straitjackets or padded rooms. That's what we did until we invented various different mind numbing drugs to put them into a comatose state. What the world so often describes as mental illness can often be attributed to the activity of the demonic and the persistent pervasive sin by the individual. This includes a whole host of diagnosable psychological issues. Now these sometimes have a physical element to them, a chemical element to them. And for that, we thank God for the common grace of the medical community. But more often than not, these are spiritual matters. These are matters of the heart, never processed properly, that now manifest in various ways with them possessing no tools to bring them to peace. Now, this man here today, if he were alive, he would be chalked full of drugs and he would live in a mental institution when his problem was spiritual and required a spiritual solution. Now, we see in verse 5 that he was constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains. He was screaming and gashing himself with stones. Know that when a demon possesses a human, they hate the very vessel that holds them. Satan and his demons hate humans. They despise us as they despise God himself. Very simply because we're made in God's image. We're little walking reminders of their demise, of their defeat, of the one who cast them out of paradise. They hate their host. That is why so many under demonic oppression cause harm to themselves, as we'll see with this man, and as we see in many other parts of Scripture. Right? We see people throwing themselves into the fire, different things like that. But here, the man is driven to hurt himself. No doubt, his succumbed personality personality wants relief. Now, Dr. John MacArthur describes this man as sleepless. He is restless. He is wandering out and in and out of the tombs and in and out of the mountains, driven into the wilderness, the desert, by the demons, tormented. This is a living hell. This is a taste of hell, completely subsumed to demonic power and presence. Nothing good, nothing left. No escape, no rest, no sleep. This is hell. And looking for relief, he grabs stones and unsuccessfully attempts to take his own life, hacking away at the flesh with stones that were meant to cut. Now, I appreciate this take because we need to remember that everyone who is under the sway of Satan, yes, he has made choices to open themselves up to this possession, but they also are now victims of an oppression you can hardly imagine. Our response is compassion and prayer. But realize that this theatrical display of evil that's in our text today, this is not the norm. This is not how Satan likes to operate. How does Satan prefer to operate? How does he like to appear as an angel of light? Satan much prefers to be in the church. Satan would prefer to never miss a Sunday. Get as close as he can. Infiltrate and subvert quietly and convincingly. He appears as an angel of light. If Satan could occupy a place, his first choice would be a church pew. No question. Pressed and polished with hymnal in hand. And half the time, where do we see demons in Scripture? Where are they? They're in the synagogue. They're in church. This presentation here in our text is very unusual. It's very unusual. But what does this man do? Verse 6. Mark 5, verse 6. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now, these tombs are somewhat elevated over this area so that when they were tying up their boats, so perhaps this demoniac was running down to do what they would normally do. Maybe from a distance, these demoniacs saw new victims coming in to be harassed. Perhaps they were rushing down to kill them until they got close. From a distance, he was running to victimize him, probably. We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is what he does when he gets there. He bows down before him. Who bows? The man? This this is an unregenerate Gentile. He has no interest in bowing before anybody. This is the demon that forces his body to the ground in submission. They know who Jesus is. They know who God is. They know who the Holy Spirit is. They know that there's a hell and they know that they're going there. They also know that it is Jesus who will put them there. Demons have far far better theology than most American evangelicals. The demons know what is true. I just saw the study. 50% of Christians in churches today in America do not know the basic tenets of the faith they, present, they, they profess. But the demons do. So this man falls at the feet of Jesus. The word used here is proscanine. It denotes prostrating oneself before a person to whom reverence or worship is due, even kissing his feet or the hem of his garment. When the demoniac meets divine, there's no negotiating. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what does the demon say? Verse 7, Mark 5, verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Son of the Most High God. (laughs) This is Genesis 14 language. We've got some very accurate theology happening here. They're saying you are the Most High. You're the Sovereign. You are one in essence with God the Father. This title this title for God is littered throughout the Old Testament. It was even said by Gabriel to Mary. There's no chance of mistaken identity here. The demon cries, what do I have to do with you? This basically means leave me alone. This is hostility. This is anger. Yet look how fast the demon goes from anger to negotiating. What a supreme irony that the tormentor is now asking to not be tormented. These demons knew that future judgment awaited them. If only America believed this. There is no challenge here to Jesus' authority. At this point, they can only cry out for mercy. That's all they can do. They know their future is to be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We see now in our text what we might call something of a parenthesis in English. Verses 8 and 9, I'll read them together. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. Can you see how that almost seems kind of uh, inserted in there? Somewhat like kind of out of out of uh, sequence for the story. And in some ways it is. It's somewhat of a parenthesis. But I want us to focus in on verse nine here because we're about to get a peek behind the curtain. Up to this point, we have no indication of the number of demons. It appears to all be singular, which may lead us to believe that this man is mostly just a split personality type of man with one demon causing the problem. So Jesus asks him his name, and we see what the demon is under obligation to answer, and he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. (laughs) Now here we should hear the sound of a record scratching to a halt if you were a Jewish exorcist. Or the like. This is not a name that the demons sat around thinking of trying to come up with something cool and scary. This is descriptive. This changes the entire scene. The Greek term legion is a military term. It's borrowed from the Latin legio and it describes the largest troop unit in the Roman army, usually between 5,500 and 6,000 troops. Well, This speaks to the incredibly violent nature, the number and the power of the demonic force in this man. One theologian writes, quote, the demoniac is not a split personality. He is a shattered personality, equal to the number and force of a Roman legion occupying him, end quote. So we are immediately struck by the awesomeness of the number and the power of these demons. And perhaps we also start to see this man as Jesus saw him. This man was shattered. He was broken by over 5,000 demons, desiring nothing but to take his own life if if given a moment of sanity. We are struck by the awesome terror of it all, followed by a compassion on this man. Which is exactly what Jesus would have saw. This gives us some perspective now when the demoniac is described as breaking chains and shackles. This was the raw force of a legion. Nothing, nobody could contain this man. For lack of a better term, he was superhuman. But this is not even a contest against the king of kings. And the demons can do nothing but beg. Verse 10. And he began pleading with him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now, this is interesting. First thing I want us to notice, as you may have already picked up on, is the bouncing back and forth between the plural and the singular. You notice that? And he began pleading not to send them. We see that multiple times in our text, don't we? Showing us the in and out of the actual man versus the demons. There are parts of this conversation that are in part with the man and part with the demons. That's what this is meant to convey. That's why we see the plural and the singular used back and forth through this entire text. But the immediate question here in verse 10 is, what is it about this region that they did not want to leave? Short answer, we don't know. I love asking questions that I don't know the answer to. We don't know, but we can make some educated guesses knowing what we know about the demonic realm and about how it operates. Demons are not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. In fact, a lot of what they do and think reveals the corruption in their thinking and logic. And at this point, it's likely that the word about Jesus being on the scene was out. Jesus Demons speak, they communicate, they strategize with one another. Though we don't understand exactly how quickly they're able to speak or by what means geographically, we don't know. But we can discern that the demons felt safe in this area. Now this area around Decapolis, the the gathering was obviously so dark and wicked that they desired to stay. It was no doubt steeped in idolatry. Being Gentile, it would have been steeped in every manner of sin. Now, verse 11 gives us some more insight into this very area. In fact, it actually tells us a lot. Verse 11. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding on the mountain. Now, this strikes us as odd, even though it is a Gentile area. Okay, these were still unclean animals. And 2,000 pigs, which is the number we'll see elsewhere, that's a big herd. That's big. This was big time commercial. This was pork product likely used to feed all of the Roman garrisons in the area. So either way, our poor Jewish disciples, they're just being hit by one taboo after the other here. No wonder the folks on the other side of the lake weren't fans. Not only are you raising pork, but you're raising pork to feed our oppressors. We need to take in the totality of this scene, though. One theologian writes, quote, thus Jesus meets a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs, surrounded by people in unclean occupations in an unclean Gentile territory. We got to take that all in. That's right where Jesus walks into. That's his scene. That's absolutely his scene. He's there on purpose and he's bringing a bunch of good law-abiding Jews with him. What happens next allows us to glean so much. Verses 12 and 13, I'll read them as one. And the demons pleaded with him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The demons know the gig is up. Jesus is here and he has come to set at liberty the captives. Scripture says that Christ came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And we see a very unusual request by them, don't we? Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. What an unusual request. What do we make of that? The short answer is it's desperation. It's desperation. These demons look around and they saw the closest thing that would allow them to escape and to continue their escapade of destruction and mayhem. If not a person, we'll take animals. So can demons possess animals? I don't know if there's any cat lovers in here. I won't go there, but (laughs) yes, they can. It appears the demonic require attachment to living bodies to give physical manifestation to their evil desires. So the mission is twofold for them. One, don't get thrown into the abyss, into the pit. And two, get into another living body so we can continue our mission. That's what they're thinking. Verse 13 now begins with something that elicits a question. And Jesus gave them permission. What gives with that? Did Jesus just compromise with a demon? Did Jesus just show some sort of empathy or compassion on these demons? That makes no sense. Why give them permission to do this? I mean, what an opportunity. What a chance to do away with almost potentially 6,000 demons in one shot. What's Jesus doing here? And the charismatics would have been binding them up and casting them into the pit like crazy. Yet what is this that Jesus is doing? And Jesus gave them permission. We've taught this before, but it bears repeating as we encounter these scenes. Satan, the devil, is the devil, but he is God's devil. And he is on an unbreakable leash. God controls the slack line. Nothing touches you as a Christian from the demonic realm that God does not allow for our good and for his glory. This means that a Christian can be oppressed by demonic forces, sometimes heavily oppressed, but it bears saying that the Christian cannot be possessed. The Holy Spirit does not share residence with demons. If you are born again, you can be oppressed by the permissive will of God, but you cannot be possessed. So if the devil is, it, so if the devil is God's devil, guess who the demons are subject to? Well, we're about to see very clearly who they're subject to. Of course, not that God animates them or is the cause of their wickedness, but that he is allowing them to do what they do for his own purposes and for his own glory. He is allowing the devil to do what he does for the growth and the good of his people. People ask why Jesus did not just take this opportunity to banish 6,000 demons right there. Why allow them to live on? Saints, God could in an instant bind up and cast into the pit every demon on the earth in the fraction of a second. Period. Jesus could have done the same right there. In a flash, in an instant, every demonic force, every principality, every power instantly into the pit. And he will. But the time is not yet. They still have a job to do. And God is going to use it for his purpose. You, Christian, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. That's what you're commanded to do. Stop binding Satan. Those who do so have no idea what they're doing. Nor do they find a command in scripture, any in anywhere in scripture to do so. You would figure with all the folks binding him all the time in Jesus name. You have to wonder how he keeps getting out. Not the way it works. God's devil God's demons, you resist the devil, resist temptation, seek shelter under the wing of the almighty in prayer and supplication. Do not toy with the demonic. You're not binding them up and you're not sending them anywhere. Live a holy life. Submit yourself to God. Pray for his protection, resist temptation and the devil, his imps and his minions will flee from you. They are powerless over your obedience to Christ and his word. God has all authority, and he fights on our behalf in these matters. His days are numbered, and soon he will be crushed permanently. Until then, Satan has a job to do. And so do we. Last part of verse 13. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The demons obey. They know what they were allowed to do, but they do not know God's will for letting it happen. They believe they will continue to be able to wreak havoc, and they do. But it's all in God's design. Saints, among the many takeaways this text wants us to get, here's our final note. There is no battle between God and Satan There is no cosmic scoreboard where Satan's putting up points on the board and then God gets a few. At the cross, it was game, set, match. Satan is defeated. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. There is no epic battle coming to see who wins. Now, there is a battle. There is a meeting at Megiddo, at Armageddon. But the outcome's already been decreed. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The one whom you serve, if you are in Christ, is absolute master. If you are safe under his wing, only the good shepherd has the key to the gate where his sheep are. Jesus is not waging war. The battle is won. And we now live between D-Day and V-Day. But make no mistake. Jesus is in control of the leash. And he's in control of the gate where his sheep lie grazing. Now let these verses today both comfort you and cause you to be vigilant and alert. The devil is a roaring lion. And he does seek to destroy whom he can. And many are in his grasp. Many in our own lives are in his grasp. Be compassionate. Be bold. And be prayerful. With that let us pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father. These are difficult texts Lord. These are subjects that Lord we would often. Desire not to talk about that we would just prefer to skip over. Lord. We thank you that it points to all that you are in all of your majesty and indeed in all of your power that you have overcome the world, that you have defeated death and hell, that you have defeated the devil through your sacrifice, Lord, which we celebrate now in Jesus name. Amen.